Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. In ancient times, the most impressive monuments and structures, such as the Great Pyramid of Giza or the fabulous Hanging Gardens of Babylon, were lauded and listed as wonders of the world. And like Seas, Days of the Week, S-Club and Deadly Sins, there were always seven of them. Other magnificent sevens celebrate more modern wonders, such as the Taj Mahal, or natural phenomena such as the Grand Canyon or the Great Barrier Reef. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast. And the guest I'm asking today is the Reverend Richard Coles. Now, these days, many of us choose or have to change from one occupation to another as industries close or necessity requires. Even so, Richard's professional life story is quite unusual, possibly unique. In the last few years, TV viewers have seen Richard competing on Strictly Come Dancing, as well as making occasional appearances on a whole variety of comedy panel shows. More regularly, he presents Saturday Live every Saturday morning on Radio 4. And that comes on top of being a clergyman, for several years now the vicar of an Anglican parish church in Northamptonshire. And that comes after being a pop star. Thirty-something years ago, the Communards, Richard with Jimmy Somerville and others, were touring the world and topped the charts with their version of Don't Leave Me This Way in 1986. And that's before we get on to the works of fiction and non-fiction he has published in recent years. So, Richard, uh, rock musician turned reverend, turned radio star, turned writer, turn on the television. I was expecting an eclectic mixture of wonders from you, and your list doesn't disappoint in that regard, though here and there it does puzzle. Are there, can I start with just asking the question, are there three or four Richard Coles, different personalities inside your skin, or does moving between these various activities just just seem normal to I, you? Well, you'd think so. And I've often thought if my CV landed on my desk, I would dismiss it as the work of a fantasist. Um, yeah. But it just sort of happened that way, Clive, I think. And I, I suppose I, I do like a swerve once in a while. Um, so I think there is just one. The continuities are perhaps harder to see than the discontinuities, but that's not really for me to judge, I guess. We'll, we'll, come, we'll possibly come back to music in due course, but uh, let's just establish for, I don't know the age of people that might be listening to this podcast, but um, obviously if you were alive in the 1980s, the Communards were a very big band. I think you were the biggest selling record of the year in 1986. So uh, that that in itself is... Uh, possibly a surprise for anybody to find themselves in a big band like that. Well, I suppose so. I mean, it wasn't a golden year because I think we only just <laughs> pipped, I think it was Nick Berry, Every Loser Wins, to that coveted spot of the biggest selling single of the year. So uh, it was in a sort of perhaps a little hammock moment between the glories of punk and what was to come at the end of the 80s. But nonetheless, it's true. I mean, I can't... My, my nephew, Oliver... He's um, he's now 19, and a couple of years ago, he became aware of the backstory and the lives of the adults around him, and he asked me if I'd been in a band with a look of surprise. Yeah. And I said, yes, I had, and he couldn't really believe it. And, I said, well, and he said, are you on YouTube? And I said, 
So uh, he had a look, and at the end of it, he saw a video we'd made, and he said, it's funny, but even then you can tell there was a vicar struggling to get out. So, you know, I, I, was just, I fell into it. Yes, yes. Um, and, of course, you are available because you were you, you played with a band called Bronsky Beat for a little bit, and then yeah. you went with Jimmy Somerville as, I mean, he was the sort of uh, the most notable, notable per- performer in the communards, and you were playing, but you played... Was it clarinet with a Bronsky beat? And then you're on keyboards with uh, the communards. Well, it was soprano saxophone, actually, with Bronsky beat. And yeah. then um, and then keyboards. I'm really a sort of keyboards is my is my thing. Um, but, I, you know, I could have played the xylophone um, or, I don't know, the stylophone even, Clive, and I hitched my mediocre talents to Jimmy's exceptional talent. And I would have been a pop star anyway because he was just so very good at it. Nonetheless, there, there you were. And I... I... Yeah, you know, then you're slightly underplaying your success, but you were you were touring well. You toured America, you're in Europe, and you, of course your nephew or whoever can see your performances on sort of top of the pops and that mm. sort of thing in this country. What a mixed blessing that is! Like looking at photographs of yourself when you were a teenager, except they're there for all to see. Yeah, um, but then you. Uh, did you discover a, a religious faith or was it always there? Because you don't think of many pop stars being particularly religious. That's maybe a bit unfair on some of them, but uh, there it is. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think, as as Charles Sisson observed, the vain, the ambitious and the highly sexed are the natural prey of the incarnate Christ. So maybe yeah. it's not so surprising. But I was a chorister when I was a kid, Clyde, so I grew up with that stuff, although yes. I thought it was nonsense. I mean, I love the music and I like being in chapel and I like the sort of... It was a, it was the era of kind of rather strange and ironic clergymen, and I enjoyed that. And I hope I've become a strange and ironic clergyman myself. So it was a return to territory that I knew, but actually embracing the content for the first time. So that was a bit what came as a surprise to me, let alone anybody else. I think certainly if the clue in the quiz was strange and ironic clergyman, I think uh, people might guess you. As, as your <laughs> oh, name there are plenty go. of us, but I suppose I'm the most <laughs> noticeable one. All right. Well, you do. Um, you do. You are always billed as the Reverend Richard Coles. Uh, yes. Do you think it's important to make that point as a? I don't know if it's a status thing, but is it just to make the point that you know vicars can be fun too? Oh gosh, what an awful thought. Um, no, it's really just because I can't quite believe it myself, and I imagine my own bishop raising an eyebrow in surprise whenever I'm heralded in that fashion. But uh, no, well, I think it's just because um, I quite like the idea of of having vicars uh, in the sort of mainstream conversation that everybody else is having. It's a place we used to occupy ex officio, but yeah. uh, less and less now. So I sort of like it. And everybody else still calls themselves Professor This or Doctor That. So I thought um, if, I've, if I had a title, and extraordinarily the nation has not seen fit to bestow a dukedom upon me quite yet, I might as well just use that one. If you've got it, flaunt it, Clive. Yeah, it's a matter of time. Maybe not a dukedom, but I'm sure there are other titles to come. Look, I've 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 held off starting with your wonders, which is bad of me. So, uh, just sort of just sketch in the background because we may come back to those themes. But your first wonder doesn't seem to uh, explore any of these life life themes at all. But nonetheless, it's your first wonder. Tell us what it is and why. Oh well, I disagree with your uh, with your statement. It's the Brompton bicycle, which seems to me to be one of the most vicarish things you could possibly have. Well, I don't know. I thought the Brompton oratory might have been a more obvious thing for a man of the cloth, but the Brompton bicycle. That'll okay. teach me to spar with one of the finest legal minds of our times. Uh, well, uh, the, no, I think the Brompton bicycle is, Clive. You know, it's a folding bicycle that looks like it's made out of Meccano in someone's shed. 
basically mm. it is made out of Meccano in someone's shed, um, that uh, folds into a sort of strange-looking tangle of metal. And then if you're good at this, you have a sort of Zen mastery of the unfold and fold of the Brompton, you can sort of get it to all of a sudden click and it becomes a bicycle that will speed you around. I think it's really designed for urban environments, best of all. Um, in London, I like to use one all the time. I did actually use one in Uganda where it wasn't quite so successful. The seven hills of Kampala were not really scalable on the Brompton, I found. But, but anyway, it was a useful lesson. But I, I think there is something... It's not just that I like the idea of beautifully engineered Professor Brainstorm-looking things. Mm. It's also just a lovely way to travel. It's such a beautifully made thing. And to sort of zoom around London on a folding bicycle, um, for me, it's a sort of experience of freedom that I rarely experience in the button-down life of a cleric. Yes. Well, I suppose the first thing people might think, oh, yeah, that fits in with you turning up in Broadcasting House uh, once or twice a week, because uh, we've all seen, well, many of us will have seen uh, W1A, uh, where uh, Hugh Bonville's party and Fletcher uh, and others were always arriving at the doors of Broadcasting House and having difficulty with their uh, folding bicycle. Well, I mean, brilliantly observed by the ever-brilliant John Morton. Uh, because mm. it's true, I don't think I've ever arrived at Broadcasting House without unfolding my Brompton next to Alan Yentop, unfolding his. There's almost a competitive element to it now, ever who can fold up his Brompton quicker. Yes. It's Alan. Oh, OK. <laughs> but, but the engineering aspect of the bike, you, you, you feel that satisfaction where you've got a bit of kit that works really well. And so it's that brand, which is a, which is a groundbreaking brand, British brand. Yeah. Uh, it's, not, it's not the cheapest folding bike, but it's arguably the best engineered. I don't think there's anything arguable about it. I think it is, but it is the best folding bike. And believe me, I've tried a few. Um, but also, and, and this is perhaps counterintuitive for somebody like me who cannot wire a plug, but I am fascinated by engineering. And my great-great-grandfather was uh, an inventor, famous in his day. And I just think that maybe there's just maybe a tiny shred of gene that's come yes. to me from him that makes me fascinated with, with engineering. He was very eccentric. He believed so much in the power of the machine to change people's lives that he thought we should treat ourselves as machines. And for breakfast every day, he had a Vaseline sandwich because he felt it lubricated his, his innards. This is true, that it lubricated his innards. I haven't tried it, I'm but so I imagine it would. I'm sorry, a Vaseline sandwich doesn't sound uh, quite, no. quite quite like that. But sounds uh, like something you get in New York in 1982, doesn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, the Brompton bicycle um, is your a, a wonder for its engineering skill, um, its engineering uh, excellence. Um, but uh, let's not dwell too far on that because that sounds too much like product placement, I suppose. Perhaps mm. you'll get a free. Brompton bike out of it. Um, what's your second wonder, or who is your second wonder, rather? My second wonder is Russell Harty. Okay, I'm leaving a pause there because hmm, in intriguing. I I know who Russell Harty is. I've uh, he was uh, on television um, a few years ago. Uh, he was uh, a presenter generally, but I suppose best known for being a sort of chat show host. But yeah. Um, um, but if you list the most famous chat show hosts in this country, you might start with Michael Parkinson. You're going to include Terry Wogan, perhaps Graham Norton. Where, where does Russell Harty fit on this, or is, there, or is he on this your list for other reasons? Uh, well, for, for all sorts of reasons. I mean, he was a terrific chat show host, um, and he had his sort of... Well, it was more than 15 minutes of fame. He did rather a long stretch of the 1980s with his own show, and I think London Weekend Television, as we called it then. 
Um, but he was a much more interesting person than, well, you know, you too have been a chat show host and you are a very interesting person too, Clive. So you would understand <laughs> that it, it, uh, he was a fascinating person. He came from a very, um, his father was had a market stall in Blackburn and he grew up there. Scholarship boy in that generation um, of scholarship boys. And we ended up at Oxford with Alan Bennett and mm. Ned Sherrin and that generation. Yes. And then he became... Uh, he was a schoolmaster at Giggleswick School in Yorkshire, and then he kind of drifted into the BBC, as so many of us have, and and found his niche making arts programmes originally. Um, but in a way, the career was the not the most interesting thing about him. It was his life, which was extraordinary. He had, it was like he had the, the sort of comic and. Um, social genius of uh, the northwest of England, of Lancashire, um, wrapped up with a highly sophisticated person who was very happy to sort of troll the galleries of Tuscany and New York and be entirely mm. at home there too. But he never lost the Blackburn market view of the world, I think. And he did it with such extraordinary aplomb. And then he died, unfortunately, of hepatitis when he was in his 50s, which was a terrible, uh, well, it was a tragedy. Um, but I've always been rather fascinated by him. And then I did his his radio biography and mm. went in search of him in places like Blackburn and Giggleswick and London and spoke to people who knew him and realised that he was just an endlessly fascinating person who I think his genius went into his life rather than his work. Yes. Well, I mean, I would tend to agree that there's something about a Lancashire accent that it's it's sort of funny. Uh, it you know that Alan Bennett in a slightly different way has that that sort of northern edge to his voice. But they, uh, you know, all of Coronation Street, all those accents there tend to be um, you know charming and also quite quite funny. And he just him sort of contemplating or ruminating on something tended to be quite amusing. But as you say, he he was perhaps his arts programs, but he was best known to most viewers as a. The chat show host, and just being beaten by Grace Jones live on the television, which well, is, I think, the clip that people would have. It's like you in the Bee Gees moment, Clive. It's exactly. The one this remember. is this is the awful thing about chat show hosting. You're only remembered by the things that go wrong. And uh, I mean, well, Grace Jones is an extraordinary figure, but and I would have thought it wasn't that comfortable to be beaten by her. But uh, no, she's strapping lass, that's for sure. <laughs> Um, but but Russell could take a punch or two, and also he. I mean, it's funny. I speak about. I never met him, but having done this uh, this documentary about him, I I feel I knew him. And that when people who did know him speak of him, it's so vivid that I place myself in in the scenario. It's a lovely story. Madge Hindle of Coronation Street was a neighbour of Russell's in Yorkshire, and um, a friend. And uh, in Giggleswick, the the. The, the parish council asked him if he would ask her to open the um, village fate, and he said yes, he would. So he asked her, and she said yes, and he brought her along. And the chairman of the parish council greeted her and then announced to the people, and we're very delighted, thanks to Mr. Arty, uh, that the fate today will be opened by Miss Myra Hindley. And um, uh, his life was littered with kind of uh, mini disasters yeah. like that. He was also, you know, there was complication and also elements in his life which I think were difficult and challenging. And uh, he just had this supreme... It's like the sort of Lancastrian version of chutzpah, if there's such a thing, mm. that kind of saw him through some awkward moments. Yes, uh, you, you, didn't me you didn't know him. No, you never he met had him. A, he had a, you know, an, an interesting career. 
yet he's number two on your list of wonders. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm still not quite sure I grasp why why he is there on well, your list. I mean, there are heroes and there are heroes. And I always find the most interesting, and if this is something I've learned as a vicar, the most interesting people are not the people who look like the most interesting people. So Russell Harty was a sort of pond skater on the meniscus of popular culture of the 1980s, if I could put it that way. <laughs> well, that's how he would appear to people. But actually, he was a fascinating person. And yeah. uh, his life connected with so many others. I just love, There's a lovely story about him. Ned Sherin told me this. Ned was um, invited you know, our summoned to Russell's deathbed. Russell died in uh, Jimmy's, I think, in Leeds. It was a hospital in Leeds, anyway. And he was rather being beset by the tabloid press who were determined uh, to say that he was dying as a result of HIV, which he wasn't, actually. But uh, his uh, his sexuality had recently become a matter of public report. This the 80s. Mm. And anyway, there was a sort of ring of steel around the hospital, but Ned struggled up from London to get there and got through it. And there was Russell on oxygen on a bed, that, the bed he soon died on. And, and Ned leaned in and said, Russell, what is it? What is it? What did you want me to say? And he moved his mask to one side and he said, Princess Margaret asked how I was twice. <laughs> That's a, that's a good story. It's a good, uh, a good last words, or very, very close to last words. The, the uh, other thing, Clive, I like about him is that as I, and I think again, it's to do with being a, a vicar, where my life intersects with others' lives in all sorts of dramas, um, and life can be sort of solemn sometimes. But he had a wonderful lightness of touch, and I do like a lightness of touch. My, I, I, it's not really a program. This podcast isn't for me to tell stories, but I. I uh, I didn't exactly meet him, but I was um, when he had his chat show moved to the BBC for a while. And he was doing them live, and uh, a guest he had on was Frankie Howard, who I was writing uh, jokes for at the time. And um, we had to set up a well. Frankie was going to tell a story uh, and, on live television and fit it to time, which was a, a for some reason I wasn't in the studio. I watched it at home, so I was on tenterhooks, worrying about Frankie getting all the words out because his genius lay in usually not saying the right words. But he had to get it to time, and it was one of those things that was a story. And then somebody else had to say, "And what happened then?" or "And what happened next?" And I'm afraid. <laughs> Um, Russell was was sweating like anything to get the thing to time, and he failed to deliver the the line, you know, the, to set up Frankie's last line. And Frankie had to do it himself, and he delivered the line correctly on, and on time. So, I mean, this is I don't I'm not wanting to speak ill of Russell, but it was a that was my moment of watching the two of them. Uh, and it, it, oddly enough, Frankie got it right, and Russell got it wrong. Yes, that's unusual. But I think that's interesting because that is chat show host to chat show host. It's like you and I who um, who do live radio programs. We always listen. Carefully carefully for the amount of time between coming out and the beginning of the pips, don't we? The crashing of the pips is the metric we use to judge each other, or one of them. <laughs> yes. Well, all right. Well, now we're, now we're talking about your broadcasting career or touching on it. So, uh, I mean, I've obviously people are going to say, oh, uh, it's odd for a vicar to be uh, to be a pop star or a vicar to be appearing on television. But but uh, your radio career, you know, presenting Saturday Live and, and in doing, indeed doing other programmes, I mean, why did you want to do that, and how did that come about? Well, it's interesting. I've been doing Saturday Live for oh, more than 10 years now, and that's since I've been ordained. And so, But actually, my radio career goes back long before that. I was on Radio 3 for 10 years before I went off to theological college, but nobody listened to the programme 
I mean, barely anyone listened to it at all, Clive. So I had so 10 years of live radio being noticed by about a dozen people, but I, but yeah. it was, I really enjoyed doing it. So I've been doing it for a long time. And then, as so often happens, I mean, I left the BBC to go to theological college, and then I was ordained. I was in West Yorkshire and then Lincolnshire, and then I got a job back in London and headed back to London, and I was walking past Broadcasting House one day, and I don't know, I think... Um, Fee Glavis Brompton had got a puncture and she was late. And so they said, would you come in and sit in for her? It was Torquil McLeod, who you'll know well, who's a producer yeah. we both work with. So uh, I did. And then um, Fee Glover got rather a taste for for motherhood and with extraordinary fecundity produced a string of children and consequently maternity leave came her way. And that was my good fortune because I got back into into doing live radio, which I love doing, I think, it's one of those jobs, isn't it? You either get it or you don't. And I think some people are just made for it. And I think I, I was made for it. And I was just very fortunate that I, I drifted into a radio studio. I mean, pop music was my... When, when I crashed out of pop music, I mean, it's a difficult moment in a pop star's life because you're 30 and you're fit for nothing, really. I couldn't drive, so I couldn't do minicabbing. But, um, but it was... Emma Freud asked me to be the agony aunt on her show on what was then called GLR, the BBC's London radio station. I only did it because she gave me a taxi home and I could stop at Sainsbury's in Essex Road and, and pick up my shopping. And that's literally how I got into radio. And if you look at that screen, we're going to hear how you are responsible for one of the greatest giggles, giggles wicks ever known from the now deputy headmaster, Warwick Brooks. Hello, Russell. Do you remember you were taking a class for geography and you suggested to them for no good reason that coal was not the only thing that came out of the ground in Yorkshire. Treacle did as well. So he borrowed it. Right, uh, there's so many things that arise there. So I think you've cleared up why the Brompton uh, bicycle is so important, because the puncture to Fee Glover uh, with her Brompton it was one route for you into radio. So that, I think we've, we've solved that as to why that's such an important wonder for you. Um, just happened to be there, ten, but, but 10 years of broadcasting beforehand. And you've mentioned theological college, but I, I want to... Um, perhaps come back to the religious conversion, if that's the right word, as sure. we go on to some other wonders, because we're going back to music with the next of your wonders. Yes, that's the piano accordion. Now, yeah. there's a famous cartoon, I think it was in the New Yorker or something like that, which shows people arriving at the gates of hell, and the devil greets them by handing them a piano accordion as they go in. Mm. It's not an instrument that uh, I think would be... Um, the sound of you know celestial music for many, but it is. I've always secretly loved it, Clive. And yes. reading instruments, I like a lot. I'm an organist, so maybe that comes from that. But 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 also, it, I like it because it's the poor person's orchestra, and you can with the piano accordion provide a, a rich spectrum of sound. You have melody on the right hand on the keyboard, and then you have a button system in the left hand, which will give you bass and chords. And mm. there's something about that that I. I just always loved, and and then a parishioner of mine died and left me his piano accordion, and this coincided with the beginning of lockdown. So I found a Latvian uh, accordionist online, and he taught me, and I'm now I'm pretty expert at Latvian wedding music, and if ever that is anything that could, you know, oblige you, I'd only be too happy to provide it. But I'm broadening my repertoire a bit now. But um, right. lockdown was. One of the ways lockdown for me was survivable was that I gave myself something to master and something that was sort of within reach because, you know, as a keyboard player, at least a third of the piano accordion was already kind of um, 
was there. Uh, and, it, and it works. The key to happiness in such things is often is setting yourself a task which is of the right duration and complexity for the available time yeah. and skill. So avoiding setting yourself setting yourself up to fail you've set yourself up to succeed yes but of course um, and... failing on the piano accordion sounds so much like succeeding on the piano accordion if you could tell <laughs> well it, so your musical abilities uh, emerge at a very young age i'm assuming yeah and you've, we've mentioned along the way playing the clarinet playing the saxophone playing keyboards playing the piano accordion, any other instruments that we should bear in mind that you could also play? Well, I started as a fiddle player, actually, the piano and fiddle, and then mm. I gave that up because I just... I mean, I was a... This won't surprise you to hear, Clive, but I was a chorister when I was a kid and a sort of nerdy, swatty child. I was musically, I suppose, quite gifted, although it sounds rather boastful to say so. Um, and, and that was all tickety-boo, and I guess that would have... Had it not been for homosexuality, which sent me to London and crossed my path to Jimmy Somerville, so that pop music happened, perhaps I would have gone down that path. But um, but homosexuality, if discovered in Kettering in 1976, did recommend uh, that you sought its fulfilment elsewhere, really. So right. off I went and life changed. So you left... <laughs> you... <laughs> Do you like Kettering? I don't know. I've never kettered. <laughs> uh, so so you... you... Uh, you, you, you're. A, well, we're talking about mu- being a musician, but you, you knew you were gay at a young age. And oh was gosh, that, yeah. I mean, as and soon was as... that okay within your family? Was, or was well, that, I didn't know. It, I, I didn't know because in those days, of course, it was, uh, it was a sort of clandestine and frowned upon, and indeed, in many ways, illegal thing. So, and also in a, uh, you know, a boys' public school, um, a revelation of that kind might not enhance your prospects socially particularly so I kept it to myself um, and then when I was 16 I thought it was daft to keep it to myself so um, I told my mum and I mean my mother and father perhaps it wasn't what they most wanted to hear but they were unfailingly loving and supportive and mm. then I went to London because that seemed to be the place to go if you wanted so to. they didn't throw you they didn't throw you out of home you decided I I will go as a sixteen-year-old, seventeen-year-old, and, and try my luck in London. Oh yes, no, I, I never had, I never suffered anything like that at all. I was always, I've seen you know, as I get older, I'm uh, more and more aware and more and more grateful that I had the benefits of an unquestioning, the unquestionable and unquestioning love of my my parents. Yeah, but you went off to London knowing you had musical ability. Were you keen on pursuing a pop career or a music career? Well. I got run over, which was an unstro- a stroke of luck, as it turned out, because I got All criminal right. injuries compensation as a result. And that enabled me to buy the saxophone that was actually the instrument that got me into... into so I, I used to go busking, and then I started playing saxophone in, and keyboards in bands because soprano saxophone, which was the version I played there, was mm. sort of rather just coming into vogue. And so I, I was lucky with that. I was not very good at it, but it but I did kind of make a noise. And um, and so that sort of got me into playing sessions for pop bands, really. I was writing theatre music at the time as well, doing a bit of rehearsal, piano in the West End. And then, so I was, and you know, if you're a chorister, Clive, you, you start very early. So at the age of eight, I was started to sing music to a professional standard. And mm. of course, one thing that comes with that is that you're absolutely steeped in four-part harmony. And if you've got yeah. those skills, then they're enormously... Uh, useful if you're if you're work, trying to make a living as a musician. So I would do arrangements, string arrangements, horn arrangements, all that kind of stuff. And I was never very good at it, but I was reasonably competent, and that was enough. 
Sounds like you're good enough. Uh, and was, was meeting Jimmy Somerville, was that an important oh, part of your career development? Changed my life. Yeah, an extraordinary... You know, I arrived in London, gay runaway from kind of middle-class, Middle England, public schoolboy and all that. And Jimmy came from a very rough, working-class, sectarian background in tenemented Glasgow. So mm. he couldn't have been more different, really. But we, we had this one thing in common which threw us together. I didn't understand a word he said for six months, which is actually not a bad basis for the beginnings of a friendship. Very gruff <laughs> Glaswegian voice. Um, but I learned from Jimmy. I threw my lot in with Jimmy. And what I learned, among many things, was that that I had assumptions about life. And they were assumptions that came from, you know, the various privileges and entitlements to use rather kind of current, perhaps overworked mm. words. You know, that I wake up in the morning and I still think that the rising arc of my life is going to take me somewhere interesting. Uppingham today. Um, mm. Whereas Jimmy woke up in the morning and thought, how am I going to eat or who are these people? I mean, and it was yeah. just interesting seeing the world through his eyes. And also extraordinarily gifted person, burning, sizzling with natural gift. And also someone who... Well, it was a roller coaster with Jimmy. You never knew if you got in next to him where you were going to end up, fearless and bold in ways that I'm not. Yeah. Well, I don't know. You, you sound uh, bold enough in uh, at, at that young age to set off in London, go into the music mm. business, which can be can be good, can be bad, can be just hopeless. Well, it was desperation, actually, Clive. I would never have done. I'm quite timid conventional sort of person by nature, I think, and had it not been for homosexuality, I don't know. I sometimes think I would have been a teacher in a prep school and I've been discovered dead under a copy of the Daily Telegraph in the SCR, left there for maybe three years before anybody noticed. <laughs> I'm sure people would notice if you weren't alive. Uh, quite apart from there'd be no stories being told in the SCR or any other uh, common room. Mm, but yeah, uh, well, if we come to the 1980s um, and... Um, being gay, of course, there's a there's the tragic aspect of that uh, being played out from from then onwards with yeah. the um, HIV and AIDS epidemic. Yeah, um, that must have played an important part in the way your yeah. your life developed. Funny, I've just been uh, in, uh, thirty years, forty years after that. I'm revisiting it with a group of friends. We all went through that same experience together. Those of us who survived, and we've all realised now that it was the defining event of our adult lives because. So at this moment, a great vindication when, you know, Bronski beating the communards had happened and we were kind of pushing back at the boundaries of inclusion and we were vindicated commercially and also culturally, I suppose. And then this plague, it's funny, people talk about COVID as if it was the first plague since Spanish flu, but of course it wasn't. And HIV came along and, well, I think at between maybe about a third of the people I knew died in the mm. 1980s and 90s. And most of them were young men in their 20s and 30s. And it was devastating. And um, and sort of jumping around, singing pop songs while that was happening on just seemed so dissonant in a way. And, well, I mean, it's a long story, but I, I, think, I think, you know, a sort of untimely uh, immersion in mortality often sort of provokes people to religious thinking, exploration. It's certainly it's interesting, two big spikes in vocations in the Church of England were 1946 and 1919, so after the churn of war. Mm. And I think for me too, it, it, I, I mean, partly it was, it's, I started to ask some sort of questions which 
I couldn't really find answers to in what was to hand. But it was it was a it was kind of I just remembered. I think like lots of people, Clive, I like churches, cathedrals. I sense that there's stuff there that you can't really fit anywhere else. And I just wanted to connect with that again. So I found my way back to church. And then when I did, to my immense surprise, I discovered that the content that I thought nonsensical um, stacked up. And and then that changed everything. Well, for some people, something like a pandemic or a war or a, any sort of tragedy or disaster makes one question whether there is a God or if there is a God, why can he be so cruel? Yeah. But for other people, as you say, you're drawn to it. Can you explain why you are somebody who's drawn to religious faith, compelled well, by this, the, the, the horrors, or rather than repelled? Well, I mean, it's a very good question. Uh, but of course, at the heart of Christianity is uh, is a crucifixion. So uh, if you look at the heart of Christianity, what you see there is uh, limitless suffering. And then what lies beyond that, which is the hope of a life transformed, of a kind of dawn rising on the darkest of nights, and you stand with the disciples in a graveyard and discover not a body but an empty tomb, and that's where that all begins. And also, I've never expected God would give me a pass from uh, you know the horrors of life, and indeed He hasn't. Uh, but that that's not the deal. It doesn't you don't dodge any of that at all. Mm. It's what lies beyond it, a possibility beyond it, and that's not just true for me, but for a lot. I mean, sometimes people come and see me, and some come to see me the other day, whose life was sort of unimaginably hard and had suffered a, a kind of list of misfortunes, and each one would you think in itself be sufficient to displace any kind of hope at all? But funnily enough, it had confirmed him. In, mm. in hope of. Well, we've gone into uh, deep waters there, which is all, all to the good, but it was, we're at the moment, and just to round it off, talking about the piano accordion. So if I just go back to that, we've mentioned several different musical instruments, arguably all of them. Um, Appalling. Well, well, no, many of them are other fine <laughs> instruments uh, that people might, you might have included on your list. The piano accordion, as you say, it's a, it allows for an elaborate sound, but has been supplanted, I suppose, in that regard by people having a, a you know small keyboard that they can play all the sounds of the orchestra and, and none. Yeah. Um, so perhaps perhaps this is a more of a 19th, well, early 20th century musical instrument that, you know, time has poss possibly passed by, but not in your book, not in your no, view of the world. And also I love the technical achievement of it. Again, it, it's an extraordinarily brilliant... I mean, it was really kind of... But the, the version we know is it came from Italy in sort of 1850s, 1860s, although there are different versions of it around the world there are italian yeah. versions german versions and oh yeah versions, and they're I different think, yeah. ways of doing it. i mean they, they, they can be very complex actually but but again it's this middle years of the 19th century when my great great grandfather was inventing he invented the christmas cracker making machine by the way but that's an aside you know um, the, the same sort of thing was happening in accordion making in in italy and all of a sudden these kind of people who came from very ordinary backgrounds were using their wit and their skill and opportunities to to make some some technically complex and wonderful thing. So, is there a Stradivarius of the of the piano accordion that uh, we we should seek out? Well, there's a Cremona, if you see what I mean. So, there is a town in Italy. Um, yeah. I can't remember the name of it, but it's where all the great accordion manufacturers live, and you can and accordion nerds go there on pilgrimage, and you can tour the manufacturers, and they will bring out um, their their wonderful beasts for you to to enjoy. Yeah. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Have you ever wondered what happened to all those space-age promises that previous generations thought we'd have by now? You know, heading out for the day on your own personal flying cars or working on a space hotel somewhere in the far reaches of our solar system. Where are all those amazing inventions? Well, we're here to find out more on my new podcast, Where's My Jetpack? I'm Sarah Credis, space expert, TV host and author. Join me and Luke Moore every week as we look into retrofuturistic tech that never was to decide whether it's still just science fiction or if some of these discoveries are actually a lot closer than you think. I think we're very close to that happening on a, an even more regular basis. And what I think is interesting about that too is that's going to make the accessibility of getting to space available for more and more people. So, if you've ever wondered whether we'll one day speak to aliens light years away or you'll be flying to work on a jetpack, this is the podcast for you. Think of the car parking spaces. They need to be massive. No, the wings can fold up. Well, they don't exist. No, some of the cars um, which were designed had wings which folded up. Are you happy getting in a plane knowing the wings fold up? Yeah. I I trust engineering. Trust the science. Search Where's My Jetpack on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Where's My Jetpack is a stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. All right, okay, so the uh, the piano accordion is on your list. And now the next one uh, is the... Am I, well, yeah, tell, tell us what the, your fourth wonder is. Well, actually, we've rather ni- nicely kind of set it up because it's the Grand Seiko Spring Drive. And this is a watch movement... The 9R, I think it is, which is made by Grand Seiko, which is the sort of posh end of the Seiko, vast Seiko watchmaking corporation in Japan. And, um, you know, fine watchmaking has been considered a sort of monopoly of the Swiss for so long um, that Grand Seiko, when it came along, um, mounted a challenge. And now they make superlative watches. As you could possibly tell, Clive, I am a, a watch nerd and again i think this might be the genetic inheritance of my great great grandfather um but i have become i think that i think grand seiko is i think they are peerless now actually and the spring drive is a movement which you know there are very few innovations in watchmaking you know essentially it's the same thing over and over again but they really did do something new with the spring drive which was absolutely brilliant and um and i marvel at it i do think it is a wonder of the world 
Well, I, I, it's obviously an expensive watch. It isn't the most... I mean, it's not a Rolex, but it's not a Timex. It's, it's, um, it's qu quite a valuable watch. And I know that from looking it up. When I first saw this on your list, all I see are the words you've put for your one, the Grand Seiko Spring Drive. I only really saw Spring Drive, and I thought, oh, it must be some street in Beverly Hills if you'd <laughs> been to or something. <laughs> so I'm very, I was very ignorant about the... Uh, and I, I like clocks and, and watches, but I haven't kept up to date. But this is... I mean, what is this, 50 years ago this was invented, something like that? Well, the spring drive is what's brilliant about it is that it, 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 has, it brings together two things which are normally not only apart but inimical. So mechanical watchmaking was uh, almost destroyed by Seiko in the 1960s and 70s when they developed the quartz movement, which mm. was a completely radically new way of, uh, of not only powering a watch but regulating its timekeeping. And it did so with a degree of accuracy that was unachievable uh, by yeah. uh, mechanical watchmaking. So that nearly wiped out, um, you know, 200 years of uh, fine well, more than that, of fine watchmaking. But then uh, mechanical watchmaking reasserted itself. And then Grand Seiko, they started they were wonderful mechanical watches, and then they brought the two together. So the spring drive is essentially um, an automatic watch. I, it has a rotor that... Um, provides power through the movement of your wrist so you don't have to wind it up but it also has a quartz regulator on the escapement which means that it has the accuracy of a quartz watch but all the mechanical satisfaction of an automatic and without having to change a battery too because in a quartz watch it's powered by battery and so every three years or so you have to send it off to be re-equipped and it yeah. and it so it's wonderfully accurate and if you like the gubbins and i do um, there's the gubbins are just so beautiful and now because of the internet you can get wonderful animated um, s sequences in which the gubbins magically put themselves together to a rather dramatic kind of James Bond film score and I just find my pulse races a little bit there's something about the wonder of machinery and the engineering and the precision of these things that I that I love well, this is certainly emerging as a theme, the, the engineering side of things that you're drawn to. Well, it'll disappear I, quite soon, Clive, I promise. No, well, I'm, some of your wonders may not appeal to everybody, because if you're young, um, a lot of young people don't wear a watch um, unless they do it as a piece of flash jewellery, because everything tells us the time now. We have you know, mobile phones that tell us the time, our, our cooker tells us the time, anything just... Uh, and you don't really need. I like wearing a watch, but that's you know you and I are perhaps older old than the the old school. Yes, very much so. But is timekeeping very important to you? With oh, so yeah. many things on in, in your life, you've got to. I suppose you've got to start a church service at the advertised time. Certainly in broadcasting, you've got to get going. And if you've also got three other engagements to get to, yeah, um, a television engagement or something, that's that's you need to be on time for it. Yeah, well, I mean, Church of England time is a bit like Sandringham time. It is an elastic concept, really. But but as you know, as a live broadcaster, you're, you have to be to the second. And I think after years of doing that, I'm doing it for 30, more than 30 years now, um, yeah. perhaps I am habituated to that. But I, I just really, really like beautifully engineered things too. And, uh, and a watch. Perhaps also there's a bit of show in me that I would rather disavow normally. And I suppose a sort of discreet but beautiful watch on my wrist allows me a sort of Hardly Beau Brummel, but do you know what I mean? There's yeah, something yeah, about no. it that I like, and it's not well, there's, embarrassing. There's a certain amount of dressing up in, in clerical robes, Oh, yeah, of course. Well, a huge yeah. amount of dressing up in my case, but that's for work, if you see what I mean. I mean, that's not about me. That's, uh, you know, that's on with the motley. 
Um, yes. But it, but I think I suppose I do fancy perhaps fondly that I would advertise my taste discrimination and thoughtfulness by having on my wrist not some kind of chunky great piece of gold with a whirling tourbillon or all the really kind of complicated uh, yeah. bits and bobs that cost fortunes but just something that is kind of sober and well chosen and beautifully made. It's one for the connoisseur and your hope that the the mugger muggers often go for expensive watches might not recognize this as a Five thousand yeah. pound watch. They'll be looking for the hundred thousand uh, pound Rolex. For yeah, the, which are easy to ahead. easy to spot. But also, people don't mug vicars, Clive, on the whole. I mean, no, it's funny you do get a sort of pass from that. Um, I don't know why, but there's something about the dog collar which does give you. Um, I don't know. It changes. It could sometimes reverse the polarity of either hostility or in or the opposite. In fact, as you go, it's a funny thing. All right, so it's well worth wearing a dog collar, not just uh, um, appearing on television or something, or in church. It's it's a protective shield. Not protective exactly, but it does elicit responses that you otherwise wouldn't elicit, and that can be for good or ill. But often it's for good, and I think for me, who's nosy and also curious and interested in people, it elicits often um, conversations that come out of nowhere from people who perhaps wouldn't normally volunteer stuff about themselves. I think there's something deep in our cultural memory that is, that, that, that you know, that, that you have a sort of role as confessor or something, or as a keeper of secrets, mm. or as conf- someone in whom you can uh, share confidence. I don't know. Well, now, looking at my uh, rather cheaper watch than a psycho, um, I will... Um... We have to see if we ever move on, oh, but uh, we're talking about your role as a vicar, and that leads us neatly once to your next wonder. Yeah. An undisputed wonder of the world is Coral Evensong, and this is one of the great gifts that the Church of England has given the Church Universal. And um, it's typically Church of England. It was cobbled together out of pre-existing sources in such a way as to dodge screaming sectarian uh, fury, um, coming from all sides, so mm. it was kind of forged in the in uh, as the Reformation began to get underway in an attempt to reconcile the irreconcilable by committees, and essentially what it came up with was something to the surprise of everybody of enduring beauty. Um, I grew up with it, and I think anyone who's a chorister in the Anglican tradition and grows up with Coraline's song called Matins Two is marked for it by life because it is just such a beautiful thing, and uh, and I do it. I do it now. So, you know, Sunday evening at six o'clock, you will find me in church singing the praises and responses, the Magnificat, the Numptimitis, speaking the collects, which somebody in exactly the same spot in my church has been doing since the middle years of the 16th century. Yes. Um, now, it, do you have a big congregation? Uh, uh, the the place you your vicar in oh, is not is not a large place, is it? No, we're four and a half thousand people, so we're a small parish, and we'd see on a Sunday we would probably get around a hundred to one hundred and twenty, but not for mm. Coral Evensong. Coral Evensong is one for the aficionados now, so you would sometimes get you know, a dozen people in the congregation and more in the choir. But actually, that doesn't really matter because it's an you know the service is offered to God, not for the edu- not for the entertainment of the people. Lovely to have the people there if they want to be there, but it's a sort of prose service in a way, as in professionals. I mean, because mm. it comes from the monasteries originally. It was offered, you know, these were the, the the daily office of monks and nuns, so not for public consumption. But it was the Church of England, being the Church of England, kind of adapted it for public use. But you could quite happily sit there and sing it 
um, you know, without anyone in the congregation at all, because it's the important member of the congregation is God, and uh, uh, you know, God is a faithful attender. Do you love being a vicar? Yes, I do. Hmm. I mean, not all of it. No. Parts of it very. We have a deanery chapter working breakfast, which I will not miss um, at all. But no, I do. I do like being a vicar. I love it. Um, now you you've mentioned you you're gay, and uh, I, I'm not sure I fully understand where the Church of England has got to as far as homosexuality is concerned. You wrote very movingly about uh, your partner, your husband, who uh, died a few years ago. Um, was was everybody comfortable with the idea of uh, a vicar being, in effect, married to another man? Well, uh, I mean, nobody knows. I don't think even God knows where the Church of England is on the issue of homosexuality. So it's very much a work in progress. But I wouldn't. Well, progress is perhaps not the right word because often I think we were in reverse, really. So we're in the we're having we're trying as we always try to do to reconcile irreconcilable opinion now, and that is mostly now to do with what we call issues in human sexuality. Too many sibilants in that to feel comfortable mm. with. Um, and I don't know where that's going. Meanwhile, people get on with their lives. So the Church of England, um, theologically, ecclesiologically, might be having rows about these things. But actually, in my church, and, you know, we're a middle England. Uh, it's a Daily Mail reading parish. But when David and I turned up, nobody batted an eyelid, actually. They were just... Um, happy to get to know us and uh, and we just fitted into the community perfectly happily because guess what we weren't the only gays in the village and that's you know more and more people's experience and the church of england at its best has been a church which has set the bar very low really and rightly so so we're here for the benefit you know somebody once said the church of england is the only organization that exists for the benefit of its non-members so we're here for everybody and yes. everybody comes and the people who come looking for what we offer are people whose lives are you know sometimes not consistent with what the Church of England thinks a life should look like. But I'd much rather deal with them than deal with the sort of Church of England having a tack of vapours about it. The um, That's another service, the vapours, that uh, <laughs> choral vapours. Choral vapours, that's wonderful. Middle of the night, probably. <laughs> uh, but as you, as you say, the Anglican Church, the Church of England, has, has a history of really being a compromise between... Um, Catholicism and yeah. the Reformation uh, between high church, low church, and accommodating. Yeah. So maybe on this this issue, it's just exercising its normal practice of yeah, and a failed. Would it be harsh to say ducking the issue at, at times. Well, um, I think sometimes it. I think sometimes there is wisdom in delaying a definitive statement and wait for the world to change. You see what I mean? And sometimes yeah. I think that if you can lodge something for a second in the long grasses, that maybe our argument will change. And by the time we go back to pick it out of the verge, we're worried about other things. I don't know. Um, it's a it's a tricky one, actually, Clive. Yeah, and I do yeah. find it very burdensome having to shoulder that, really. All right. Well, of course, oh, yes, I, I, I follow that. Uh, perhaps I should have raised this when we were talking about watches and timekeeping. How do you have the time to be a vicar for some days of the week, certainly Sunday and uh, other days, people? parishioners to visit and so forth, and to be in London presenting a radio programme and to do, uh, well, either writing books or appearing on the television or whatever. How do, you, how do you fit it all in? How have you found the time to write, well, sort of memoirs, autobiographies, but also a book about saints and, and, and a novel, I think? Yeah, novel. Uh, my first novel is arriving uh, in June. Um, well, uh, by getting up early in the morning, actually, by not having children, 
So I, I don't have children. I have two needy Jacksons, but it's not quite the same thing. And I can neglect them without fearing that um, I'm going to be prosecuted for it. Um, so I get up early in the well, morning. Well, I wouldn't be so sure about that. I think people Maybe who neglect their much. dogs can be up before the beak. Yes. Or certainly um, up before the RSPCA. I'm, I'm, I jest. I wouldn't dream of neglecting my dogs. Um, one is sleeping contentedly at my feet. You might hear snoring noises and things. But no, I get up early in the morning, Clive, so I aim to be at my desk at five, and then I do two hours... Uh, writing before I do anything else and and that's fine but the trouble is it only really works if you get to bed at a reasonable hour and I quite mm. often find that because I'm busy I'm quite often working in the nights as well and one of the things I was finding was that I was just uh, wearing myself out a bit and uh, and I thought well I, this is a bit ridiculous so I, I just want to I suppose I'd like to sleep a bit at night so that would be good yeah do, do you? I mean, you you share a lot of yourself in your writing yeah. and in your general way of going about things. Do do you often do you, do you ever sort of regret uh, exposing yourself, if that's the right way to put it? Uh, well, I mean, I, I I think I look like I share a lot, but of course I share what I choose to share. So, mm. uh, and, and in a when I do that, I do I'm sort of mindful of a tradition that goes back to Saint Paul. I mean, I would hesitate to make two. A closer comparison between uh, him and me, but but there there is a confessional tradition within Christian literature, I think, which I sort of get. I think, um, I, no, I don't regret it. Partly because I think also that I've I've you know I've quite happily shared with the world aspects of myself which do not speak um, to my virtue or credit. But there's nothing wrong with that. I did drop my brother in it rather badly once, which um, yes, you did. Uh, tell us, tell us about that. He was a, had been a police officer. Well, my brother was a police officer, and it's difficult for me to talk about actually because it's subject to an inquiry at the moment, Clive. But I, I can say that um, he was an undercover police officer, and allegations were made about him when he was serving as an undercover police officer, which are being um, examined at the moment. But I unintentionally. Uh, sort of semi-revealed him as that by referring to his past in a book I wrote long after it had happened and when he had retired um, mm. and unintentionally, um, I suppose, pointed towards him in connection with that work and that was to lead to, well, really the horrible consequences for him in that he uh, he had to step down from his job. He was a deputy police and crime commissioner and uh, and also he was the subject of intense media interest for a while, which was extremely intrusive for him and his wife. And, uh, you know, regardless of the merits of the allegation, it was very difficult for him. And he is my brother. And mm. uh, and that was, I just wish I hadn't done it, but it was unintended. It just one of those things I hadn't been alert enough. And uh, As I said, we don't need to go into the merits of the allegation, but it, it's what, what's... The consequence is you're just writing, oh, I did this, I did that. Oh, and my brother, it's a walk, hardly a walk-on part in the in the book you were writing, just a, a, perhaps a couple of sentences. Um, and it's, But when you're talking about your own life and real people, there are things that, that can happen, unpredictable things. So you might think, oh, as you say, you wish you hadn't written that. It didn't need to be in the book at all. It no. just happened to be a line. I, I just didn't realise that it was potentially... Um, damaging. I, I mean, what I've always, when I have written stuff which I thought about, which involves other people, which I thought is awkward, I've always sent it to them and said, I'm very happy to either lose this entirely or change it if you wish. Only yeah. one person asked me to lose something entirely, which I did. Um, I mean, I, I wrote a lot about Jimmy and these extraordinary escapades that Jimmy got into with a frankness that was 
uh, perhaps notable. And I wrote mm. to him and said, listen, I'm happy to lose all of this. And he wrote a lovely email back and said, it's your story, tell your, tell your story, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. but he's a, he's a pop star. Um, and, you know, a few stories about him may or may not be damaging, but may just add to the myth. But if if you're writing about a, a crime commissioner, yeah. uh, that's um, that, that's there are possible consequences. Well, and so there are, I mean, writing about David's death, again, you know, that wasn't just something that affected me, but it was, deep, of course, it affected his parents and his siblings. Mm. So I then, I, I, you know, before that, that was sent off for approval before before that went into into the public domain too. So I, yeah. I, I take, I take, I do try to take care. It's risky though, Clive, and and, mm. and I sometimes, I've really enjoyed writing fiction because I felt I've, I've not had to yeah. worry so much about that stuff. Sure. Well, you, I mean, David was your partner, and you wrote, wrote about his death and also the, what led to it and, yeah. and what he was like. As it would so as you say, it's a, you are in danger of risking offending somebody or upsetting somebody well, where was you well, to make it, it fictionalized yeah you, you could have invented two vicars living together and uh, you might you say well that's fiction and may or may not have something to do with my yeah. own life and you know there are you know people are entitled to privacy and people are entitled to uh, respect for those areas in their lives which are you know difficult and sensitive which is why i would always ask permission Mm. But there's more to it than that, actually, if I'm truthful, because you know I put my version of a story out there, and I'm fortunate that I have a, a readership that's going to engage with that. Well, I hope I do, um, yeah. and then lots of other people don't have that. So I don't know. I yes. do feel a bit uneasy about it, to be honest. We're coming on to your sixth yeah. uh, wonder, and I have no idea what what you mean by this, or or what this can be about. Your sixth wonder: old bags, old bags. Yeah, one of the great great gifts of the Church of England to uh, our world is old bags. It's a great place to be an old bag, and I love 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 my ministry to old bags so much that I wish I could become an old bag very often. So you're talking? Are we talking about old people, old women in particular? Old is women this... who are difficult and awkward and um, confrontational and cussed. Yeah, and um, the Church of England has long been. I, I should say when I say old bag, that's not intended in any pejorative way at all. But it's just I think what it would conjure in people's minds the kind of person I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm... Well, you could see how it might be interpreted as a pejorative term. Um, it's perhaps a term somebody might use about themselves and we'd be entertained by. They might object to their well, vicar. they would, them an old but bag. the old yeah. bags I'm thinking of would object to anything and everything and, <laughs> uh, and would also berate me for it fiercely uh, at yeah. the church porch, as indeed they sometimes do. But I love the old bags, Clive, because they are power... They are, they are the muscle that keeps things going along, and they tend to be kind of nosy and awkward. But they are the people who keep the show on the road. And one of the great things about being a vicar is you realise that so much, you know, the pulse and the heartbeat of communities. So much of that comes from old bags and old baggery. And I want to praise them. All right. Well, I'm I'm, I'm trying to stick within your the the word the way you're using it because if if you say of somebody they're an old woman. Uh, that might be just an accurate description of somebody's age, but you can. But this is a more um, sort of military wing of uh, more militant wing of uh, of being an old woman, being an old bag who is uh, standing up for her rights, right or wrong. Yes, exactly. And also, you don't have to be an, an old woman to be an old bag. Actually, I love seeing 
young women, indeed sometimes some young men, who I think, oh, you're going to be an old bag. And that and that's good to see because they have the qualities. And also, I mean, I, I think old bag, it's a bit like, you know, it's one of those words that is pejorative that I think should be reclaimed for praise because um, I've, I've come to very much value and respect and admire and indeed love the old bags in my life. And um, I think old baggery should perhaps be, it's rather like the old contemptibles, isn't it? It should yeah. be turned into uh, a badge of honour rather than a slur. I'm not sure you're running with the with the way things go these no. days. It's uh, often people are more obsessed by the offence in a word rather than adopting it. Oh, or, I know. It, it varies, obviously. You you must be wary of this in all aspects of your life, uh, well, whether you're uh, on preaching a sermon or introducing a live or talking to somebody on live radio. Yes, and I think once you'll know this too, Clive, that uh, you know one sort of has to be very alert and self-police quite diligently because there are uh, really quite serious dangers that would follow if you got it if you got it wrong. I'm about to retire, so perhaps there's a certain latitude as I head to the exit that uh, wouldn't be there before. But I'm, but I mean, I think there's a serious. I mean, it is not wise to unnecessarily give offence. I think it is sometimes useful to use language in such a way to surprise people and maybe mm. derail them a little bit from a kind of a unexamined way of thinking. I'm, I'm so fascinated talking to you because you're a barrister and because I've always really rather admired that and thought how f I've always, I would quite like to, if I were more combative, I'd like to be a barrister myself, but you know, you, you're so good with the way you ask questions and the way you well, use I, words. I don't know about that, but you can, uh, you could certainly have been a barrister if I'm not, things I'm not, are taken in a different direction. Well, I'm not combative enough. And also I don't think I could quite cope with, I don't know, representing someone to an employment tribunal in Walsall. I'm not sure. that. I mean, if I could be Effie Smith, that would be different. I'd love that. You'd be a perfect Effie Smith. It's, it's hard for anybody to be Effie Smith uh, nowadays. It's not It's not quite as... Um, no. Effie Smith was a huge star uh, by being a, an important uh, lawyer, yeah. um, barrister, which is... It's, it's harder to get that sort of level of fame and excitement from from that sort of practice. But I'm sure you could have done it if anybody... I uh, wear a wig anybody. beautifully. Yes, I'm sure you do. <laughs> Look, I'm just worried that we've we have. I've mentioned it right at the beginning, but we haven't just touched on it because a lot of people, the way these things work, will know you more from your appearance on Strictly oh, Come Dancing gosh, yes. than everything else put together. What made you agree to do Strictly Come Dancing? Did you expect to win, or were you expecting to be the sort of John Sargent and Widdicombe uh, um, candidate for, well, for a little a bit of a laugh? Well, I, when my agent was discussing it with me, he said, do you sure you want to do this? And I went, yeah. And he said, well, you're not going to win. And I genuinely felt this little prick, prickle of indignation that he thought, my own agent, and I might not win Strictly Come Dancing. And I think... Truthfully, Clive, there is a, a, a delusional part of me that thought that there was perhaps a Justin Timberlake waiting, or a Twinkletoes, mm. or a Mr Bojangles waiting yes. to be released, but there wasn't. And I'd only <laughs> discovered that when 10 million people were watching me do a Paso... After my Paso Doble, which was my swan song, <laughs> uh, almost my overture, actually, I remember seeing my mother the next day and saying... She watched it and she said that I looked like a, a walrus that had been tasered, and um, yeah. <laughs> and that tells you. But I mean, it was a. I was 
are so bad. Um, I mean, I loved it. I had a marvellous time. and I... Everybody seems to say that. that it, however awful their experience looks to be from the outside, or wonderful, everyone says, oh, I really enjoyed the, the training, the getting to know people, the working with my uh, professional advisor and so forth. Well, I mean, was, it's was a bit it really like, as good as that? It's a bit like Christianity. You have to say it's wonderful, don't you? Of course, the more interesting story yes, of Strictly is the, is the Tornia account but that's not I obviously say that for a novel but um no no but it is wonderful and, and I think it's I think why I loved it so much it was like being a child and playing again only mm. with the most fantastic toys and playmates so that was just wonderful and and also as somebody I love you know as you probably know I, I like I like seeing how things work and the mm. complexity of Strictly is just logistically it is so complex and difficult and seeing people who are the best at what they do, doing the best they've ever done. As well, mm. I mean, the professional dance is astonishing. Dave Arch and the band, astonishing. But also just the guy who does, I say just, the guy who does the steady cam. I mean, they're just mm. brilliant. And to see it being made effortlessly, with the appearance of effortlessness, it's not, yeah. um, was so thrilling and exciting. So you were genuinely disappointed to be eliminated early on and well, you were hoping to be there in the final um, yeah, I mean, I was genuinely disappointed because I was having such a nice time. I was quietly outraged because I thought, how could the world not acknowledge the uniqueness of what I was doing? Well, it did acknowledge the uniqueness of what I was doing, but not in the way I expected. But also it was like being, I remember, so I got booted off. And then you're given what they call the death flowers. And it's a and it's a bunch of flowers saying thank you and goodbye. And you get into a cab and you're driven away. And I remembered being taken home from a children's party when I was a little boy, I think I'd been sick or something, mm. and waving at my friends from the back of my mother's car as it departed, and they were carrying on having a lovely time, and I was going home, and it just felt like that. It is, mm. do you know what it is about Strictly Time? I think one of the reasons why it's so popular, it does connect to something of childhood, actually. It's a bit like Christmas. Mm. It takes us back to our own childhoods, and it stirs stuff in us that, that goes very deep and is very un mediated by mm. you know, adult compromise or something. And was it the dressing up you liked or the, obviously your musical, so you could, at least in theory, should be able to cope with, you know, moving to a rhythm and, uh, well, and understanding think. where you were in the in the piece? You'd think. But, no. uh, uh, I mean, I love dressing up, but even I found the dressing up a bit excessive. There was, I was given a wig once and, uh, and the other thing about, I remember once Ginger Rogers saying, that she did everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards and in heels. Mm. And if you look at what people do in Strictly, it's, like, you know, it's as if gravity is optional somehow, or as if towering mm. heels are somehow there to, to assist you as you move around a dance floor. And they're not, and they just, they make it, they're just wonderful. And uh, mm. I formed a very deep and lasting friendship with Di, who was my my dance partner, who is the yeah. Australian champion. And uh, I mean, she's lovely. I mean, we have. Our lives were so different. And one of the, my favourite things was discovering her. There's a bit where she said that she modelled herself on Ariel. And I said, oh, gosh, yes, I love I love, um, I love, love The Tempest. It's one of my favourite plays. And then I remember she went, Ariel, The Little Mermaid. And uh, so we had a sort of, that would happen quite yeah. often. But who did you model yourself on, Prospero or Caliban? 
Sycorax, I think, would probably be the name. I wasn't, I just couldn't do it. I'm not as fat and old. And I did discover also that I have one leg significantly longer than the other and arthritis oh, really? in both knees. Yeah. And I'm one degree off obese. That was the result of my medical with a rather laconic doctor in Harley Street when I was um, going forwards. All right. Well, at least you passed the medical. It allowed you to, to take part. You weren't condemned from the word go. As, well, I think as... if I had heard one leg significantly longer than the other, one degree off obese and arthritis in both knees, there might have been a message in that that perhaps I should give it some more <laughs> circumspect consideration. Uh, so we come to your last wonder, if we may. And again, yes. a puzzling one, just looking at it. What What is this about? Seafaring. Hmm. Well, it's a recent... It's one of the things... I always thought when you get... I put off Wagner until my mid-40s, because I thought I want something meaty to get into in the last half of my life, or the second yeah. half of my life, you see. And uh, so I tend to think that perhaps after 50, I wouldn't really discover anything that would captivate me so much, but I did discover seafaring, and now I absolutely adore it. And I just can't think why I didn't discover it sooner. Not only do I like what sea... sea... What sea are you faring? What are you, what are you doing in your seafaring? Where you're going on a big boat, you've got yourself a dinghy, you're oh God, no, sitting I don't... by the coast no, no, looking no, no, no. at it? What... I'm talking about big boats with lavish accommodation and magnificent yes. hospitality. So I'm Cruising? Talking... Well, well, cruising and linering and all that sort of thing. I adore cruises. One thing David and I discovered was was cruises and it I remember doing the first one I was a paid job and thinking this is like being locked in Wellingborough Golf Club for two weeks yeah and it was like being locked in Wellingborough Golf Club for two weeks, but it was the most fun and the what you have to do is throw yourself into it so that's all fun but what I really love is being at sea there is something I remember doing a I was on a ship small ship and it was I think the first time I realized how much I like seafaring and I was traveling from uh St Kilda to the western fjords of Iceland and it was nearly midnight on a summer's night and the sea was like glass and it was still light and we were going on about 15 knots at a depth of about two kilometers I think and I remember thinking this is like being in space somehow I didn't mm. stand at the front like Kate Winslet in Titanic but and I was alone on the promenade deck and then I realized I wasn't alone. there was a woman there uh, an old bag actually and we got talking and uh and she just was very forthcoming about her life and then and she'd had an extraordinary life and I said what's what do you want to do now what's left and she said I'd like a noble death which I thought was a very interesting thing to say and I said well what did you have in mind and she thought she said I'd quite like to go down on this ship and I mm. sort of get that there would be something about going down on a ship that deeply appeals to me Right. I mean, obviously, it'd be nice. If I don't want to drown anybody else as part of the realization of this fantasy. But if I could go down on a ship, I'd quite like that as an end. You know, I'd, I'd have found that quite worrying. Somebody standing next to you on a ship saying, "I want to go down on a ship," because you might, maybe she was going to do something to achieve that. And well, you, uh, you would have been a, an innocent victim. But she didn't look like the sort of person who would know how to open a bilge, Clive. So I felt confident that it was not going to happen. But I, there was something about. I think it's a bit like being in space. Somehow. I don't mm. want to go to space at all. The idea of achieving zero gravity next to Elon Musk does nothing for me at all. But, no. but this moment of just being on the prow of a ship, cleaving the North Atlantic, was so beautiful. Sounds like you were lucky because St Kilda to Iceland, uh, that could be a, quite a rough passage many oh, times gosh. a year. I mean, but the funny thing is, the, 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 you'd think, you know, obviously that would be the place all the Cape of Good Hope or something, but actually the worst I've ever had, it was really bad, was the Bay of Biscay, which is a notoriously lumpy mm. bit of water, as seafarers say. But I was once in it, uh, in I think it was a Force 11, 
and uh, it was it was really extraordinary and awful at the time. So I was sick as a dog, and so was everybody else, and everything was sort of clattering around. But then, to, so one of the things I like about seafaring is adventure that you can survive and we came out the other end of it and there was something it's a bit like seasick i used to be put off seafaring because i can't think of anything worse than seasickness but actually yeah. it passes and then you're on the other side of it and then you think oh actually this is all right well it well it passes and it doesn't pass i mean you if you're seasick and you are sick you're you're still seasick it's not like uh, throwing up and getting rid of some poison in your body you're still going up and down on the on the water and if that if your body doesn't like that then you're well, stuck until you get to dry land or at least uh, flat seas well i don't know for me i find it's kind of worn off perhaps i've got my sea legs a bit but i don't really even notice the movement of it i've just come mm. back from from one actually but it was i was on the biggest cruise ship in the world which was like if you imagine canary wharf on its side taken over by disneyland it was mm. that, and actually, you had, yeah. I didn't even notice we'd left port actually because it's there's no movement at all. Extraordinary thing, sort of awful, but I was fascinated by it. And again, you... great thing if you're a vicar, you have a unique privilege, which is that you're allowed to go crew side to tend to the spiritual needs of the crew. So I'm allowed to go through the door which separates the what they call the hotel side from the yeah. crew side, and then I can see how these amazing things work. So when you say you were paid to be on one of the ships. In... To do something akin to your radio work or your no, I TV do a, work or or vicaring. No, I well, I both. do no, I do a turn. It's an evening with the Reverend Richard Cole, so I yes. um, and regale people with my fund of anecdotes and stuff. And uh, and actually, I really I really like it. And also, um, you know, should spiritual. I just did two burials at sea on my last cruise, so just last week actually in the Gulf of Mexico, which um, was a was a new experience for me. Well, you're a jolly handy person to have there because you're, a, as you say, an evening's entertainment uh, for the trip, but also you can you can help out with... Can, could you marry people as well, as well as conduct uh, funerals? Well, the legalities of that are complicated. Um, so uh, I, I think... I don't know, actually, Clive, but I don't... I, the special licence I would need would probably um, confound all the apparatchiks of Lambeth Palace to provide, so I don't know. Well, I, well, I have a, a sort of more or less sensible question. It is all very well to get a bit seasick if you're a passenger and it's uncomfortable. But if you're booked to appear at nine o'clock after a lovely fish supper well, uh, and you're going to an hour and a half or two hours of Reverend Richard Cole and you're feeling sick or being sick. I've had this happen, um, Clive. Yeah. Uh, well, I was on, um, I can't remember what the name of the ship was, but we were in Choppy. Again, it was the Bay of Biscay again. And I was giving a talk in the theatre and I finished... And I knew I was going to be sick. And I mm. went off stage and I opened a door and fortuitously, providentially, it was a loo. And as I opened the door, a spume of vomit hurtled from my mouth, but landed perfectly in the toilet bowl. And I'd like to think that the hand of God was in that. Yes. Yeah. I, well, I think it could well be. Um <laughs> I leave that charming image with you. <laughs> well, oddly enough, I have a similar image. I was once uh, on a train uh, going to to do a talk in uh, Durham, and I was very, very ill with food poisoning. Oh, no. And the the loos at either end of the carriage were locked and, and in use. And um, I did. So I don't say I prayed to God, but there was a certain thinking. Oh, please, will yeah. somebody come out of one of these things? And if it was the hand of God, He opened one of the doors and allowed me to get into the loo oh, just in time. And it was. Uh, so um, that that may have 
drawn me into the church as well. Look, Richard, um, this is an unhappy note to be ending on with you and me uh, vomiting into lose, but <laughs> but seafaring, I suppose that go. But Northamptonshire is a long way from the sea, so yeah, uh, well, are you I, going? To... Well, I'm retiring next year to the sea. Well, not to the sea, to the yeah. to very near the sea. So um, I will be able to um, have the sea um, very close to hand. A coastal uh, cottage or a house? Yes, or it's a, a it's a, it's a little cottage in a village in East Sussex. Um, actually, not far mm. from Beachy Head. So uh, I have um, the chalk cliffs of of um, Sussex to look forward to. Well, thank you very much for sharing your um, wonders with me, your seven wonders. Thank now, I have to choose the wonder of wonders from our list of seven, the one which struck me as particularly wonderful, as you described it in this podcast. And I'm struggling uh, somewhat to know, because they, you've argued, if, if that's the right word, in favour of all of them uh, so magnificently. Um, I think I should stick within the world of engineering because that's clearly been an important and unexpected part of your life that's emerged. And because uh, I doubt it's going to crop up that often with other guests, I think I might go with the piano accordion. Oh, which seems sufficiently engineered and also quirky, and but it reflects your musical side uh, as well as everything else. So I'll, I'll make that, if I may, your wonder of wonders. Well, that's the one I would have chosen, I think, Clive. Oh, good. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Oh, very polite of you. So thank you very much, uh, Richard, the Reverend Richard Coles, for sharing your seven wonders. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to my seven wonders, it would be wonderful if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform site or provider you found us on. Thank you very much. Seven Wonders with Clive Anderson is a stack production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the Acast Creator Network. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.